All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. All right. My guest today on Pod Save the World is General Doug Lute. Uh, General, you've served in so many senior positions in the U.S. government that I need to truncate your bio. But the uh, <laughs> the gist is that you were a career Army officer. In 2010, you retired from active duty as a lieutenant general after 35 years of service. Uh, you also served for a total of six years in the White House uh, as a special assistant and senior coordinator for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And then as an assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan during the Bush administration, uh, you are one of those uh, great public servants uh, I've talked about many times on this show whose politics I am unaware of, but who served in presidents of both parties. Uh, and then in 2013, President Obama appointed you to be the U.S. permanent representative to NATO, where you served until very, very recently. Thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Tom. It's really good to be with you. Um, thanks, man. I, I miss uh, I miss going into your office because there was always really cool <laughs> maps of <laughs> Afghanistan and, like, literal lists of Taliban bad guys uh, that had been crossed off. It was uh, out of a movie. Right. So, right. so you, you you made this transition from active duty service in the Army to overseeing policy in the White House. There has been a lot of discussion about the number of former generals serving the White House, and I imagine you know a lot of those uh, men, and I'm curious to hear your opinion about that. But I think it would also be interesting for people to hear about what that transition is like and, and how is it different? Like, how do you go from serving in the military to making and overseeing policy about how the military operates? Right. So I joined the Bush administration in the summer of 2007. So it seems amazing, but 10 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was in, on active duty at the time. I had left the Pentagon uh, literally on a Friday, started work in the White House on uh, Monday. Uh, and I stayed on active duty through the Bush administration. Uh, and then for the first 18 months or so of the Obama administration, mm -hmm. then uh, I left active duty, retired, as you said, and uh, just moved over into the civilian ranks uh, for the rest of my time there, uh, totaling six years. So, I mean, I think the key reflection here is that it's actually difficult um, and a bit unusual for an active duty Army officer to be in that political environment. Um, and it, it puts an active duty officer uh, in a bit of an unusual and uncomfortable maybe position because, you know, there's hmm. a, there is a chain of command that runs from the president to the secretary of defense and then out to combatant commanders. Well, mm -hmm. if you have an active duty guy or gal in the West Wing, uh, exactly how does he or she fit in that chain of command? And the answer is, you know, it, it isn't a good fit. Um, yeah. So when you're seeing the president as frequently as we did in um, uh, in the Obama administration and before that with Bush, it just puts you in a bit of an awkward position regarding uh, or, or relative to 
the chain of command. So mm-hmm. it's it's uh, sometimes when people ask me this, I liken it to, you know, you have uh, you're afloat on two adjacent rowboats, and you're standing in these two rowboats with one foot in each boat. And over time, <laughs> what tends to happen, yeah, you've already got the instinct, right? <laughs> yeah. The boats start to drift apart. And so um, your role as a military officer and your role as a senior advisor to the president sometimes are, uh, can be at odds. That, that's a, a great metaphor. Um, and then you sit in deputies committees meetings all day and you wonder um, when you will ever leave. So I, I was hoping to start with Iraq because you had major roles at CENTCOM uh, and then on the joint staff from like 2004 to 2007. And then you went into the White House, as you're saying, to coordinate the war efforts. Those were incredibly difficult times in Iraq. I don't need to tell you that. Um, the amount of sectarian violence was horrific. The security situation was spiraling out of control with over 50 attacks and three car bombs per day on average in Baghdad alone. Can you talk about um, President Bush's decision to surge more troops to Iraq and what it meant, not just in terms of a troop increase, but in terms of like how the war was being waged and conducted on the ground, like the different components of the surge? Right. So by the end of 06, when uh, President Bush took this decision to um, reverse course, if you will, stop the steady handoff to the uh, Iraqis and surge American troops, uh, which culminated in his speech to the nation, I think, in January uh, of uh, 07, uh, these were the darkest days in Iraq. I mean, as you said, sectarian violence was spiraling out of control. Um, there was uh, just massive violence in the streets in Baghdad, um, a lot of it driven by sectarian, uh, sectarian differences and so forth. Um, and we were losing control. So the president took a decision, and, and frankly, a decision contrary to all, virtually all the professional military advice of the active duty ranks uh, mm-hmm. serving at the time. Uh, and he, he took a decision to move from 15 active, active duty brigade combat teams. So that was sort of the coin of the realm, the BCT, the brigade combat team. And, and, mm-hmm. and here you're, we should think about about 5,000 troops are in a BCT. Right. So right. there were 15 of those on uh, duty in Iraq and had been for some time on steady one-year rotations. Uh, and he added five more. Uh, and that was that. Those extra five brigades comprised the surge. Uh, he took a number of other steps. Uh, he um, changed commanders, uh, put uh, Dave Petraeus uh, in uh, command uh, in Baghdad, um, and with Dave came a change in concept uh, as to how the U.S. troops were being used. And and what Dave essentially did was decentralize the fight, uh, putting American troops in small outposts with Iraqi troops alongside them in communities and neighborhoods, on the corner, on the block, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. in an effort to stem this violence. Um, In Washington, meanwhile, uh, he uh, he took a couple steps as well. One of those was to uh, look for someone, and it turned out to be me, uh, look for someone who could keep him up to date, uh, day to day, on what was going on in the war, but also um, uh, with the task of trying to bring to better coordination all the different bits of the U.S. Uh, interagency, the U.S. government effort, so USAID, the diplomatic mm-hmm. effort, uh, the effort with Ryan Crocker on the ground as the ambassador in Baghdad, uh, the regional effort, um, and, and so forth. So there were a lot of bits and pieces. So the idea was uh, let's have one point of contact in the White House who can, um, who can be positioned to try to uh, do a better job at coordination. So that's what brought me to the White House by, uh, by July of 07. 
Did that give you better visibility into resource allocation and availability across both theaters of war? Or is trying to manage Afghanistan and Iraq just too big and too different? Like, how, how did you feel like that role worked? Right. So the, this, you know, six or seven word title included Iraq and <laughs> Afghanistan. But right. look, the reality is 95% of my time, 95% of the president's time was committed to uh, Iraq. Uh, and Afghanistan was uh, very much um, a secondary theater. We did what we could there when we had time and resources to do it, but we weren't really focused on Afghanistan. This was a war mm-hmm. effort against uh, against our enemies in Iraq. Right. So we talked about the troop increase. You talked about the the tactical changes uh, that General Petraeus made. There was also the issue of the Sunni awakening and, and the reconciliation effort that uh, really – you know, started to bear fruit in 2007. And I'm asking about that not because I want to, you know, engage in this debate about whether the surge work or not, but I think it's interesting and instructive to talk about reconciliation uh, as we look forward to Afghanistan. Well, look, by sort of the fall of 2007, so now six months or so into the surge, it was clear that the trends in sectarian violence were beginning to to improve. Um, And I think that the additional five brigades of the U.S. surge were one factor. But Mm -hmm. this is a multivariable equation. Um, And you mentioned a couple things. First of all, a year before the surge, the Sunni awakening, that is the outreach to the Sunni tribes, especially in Al-Anbar province, uh, Mm -hmm. had already uh, taken place. So that predates the surge. And that brought uh, many uh, Sunni Arab uh, tribal leaders uh, aligned them with us uh, against uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. So that was critical. Uh, the year before the surge, uh, the Jaysh al-Mahdi, so this is the Mahdi army, the army of Muqtada uh, al-Sadr, uh, was sidelined. So Sadr took his Shia militia essentially out of the fight. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing that gets sometimes underplayed is that while um, all through 06, and into 07, while the additional brigades were deploying, Stan McChrystal's JSOC, so the Joint Special Operations Command, these are the, the high-end counterterrorist forces, were right. hammering away at uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. So you have all these factors playing a part. I don't think this serious history has yet been written that sort of discerns among these factors and weights them, you know, most important, perhaps least mm-hmm. important. Um, but mm-hmm. it's really, I think, as Americans, we tend to focus on, you know, we send five more brigades and the next thing we know, things began to get better. Yeah, that, right. that was an important part of it, but it wasn't the only factor. Right. Well, I think, I think we just figured out your next book project. Um, so I steady, hope you have some time. Steady, steady, steady. <laughs> so over the don't, last don't couple months. Don't go crazy. You promise not to go crazy on this podcast. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, So President Trump's team over the last several months did a full review of policy and objectives in Afghanistan. And when I heard him talk about this and I read the the stories about the process, it sounded like a review President Obama ordered of our Afghan policy in 2009. And you lived every moment of that process. You did hundreds and hundreds of hours of staff work on it. And then you got to a deal with annoying press guys like me uh, begging you for details when the (laughs) meetings ended so I knew what the hell happened. Can you talk about why that review was necessary and what kinds of things you discussed? Like, what did President Obama want to know from you guys, and how did you get him answers? Well, I think each of the administrations, uh, the, uh, the Trump administration and its two predecessors, 
have had to contend with an extraordinarily complex policy set in Afghanistan. So the reason these reviews are absolutely essential is that you don't really walk into the West Wing and take a right at the first door and go into the Situation Room and understand Afghanistan. So there's a real burden here to figure out the demographics. So who are the Pashtun people? Uh, Why are they uh, struggling against one another, uh, the government and the Taliban? Uh, Who are the regional players? Uh, How does the geography, the culture, the history, which now is approaching 40 consecutive years at war in Afghanistan, how does all this play into uh, U.S. policy options? So until you can unpack that, those facts, until you can kind mm-hmm. of begin to understand the outline of the problem, which is what these policy reviews reveal, right? Uh, it's very hard to launch into, well, what should our options be? And I think, I think it's true across all three of these last administrations that all of them have had to early on wrap their arms around the facts. And I think, you know, that's most likely what was taking place in the Situation Room over the last couple months in the uh, Trump administration. Yeah. So digging into that review for a minute, can you explain what the Taliban is? How are they different from ISIS uh, or al-Qaeda or the, you know, many different types of extremist groups? And how many Taliban do you think there are in Afghanistan? Well, okay, so just in reverse (laughs) sequence— Yeah. The answer to how many are there has remained amazingly consistent over the last decade or so. Uh, And it's about 25,000 or give and take. So no matter – and this is revealing because no matter what our success on the battlefield in terms of eliminating, capturing, dissuading uh, Taliban fighters, they always seem to end up uh, at about twenty-five to 28,000 right in there. And that's mm-hmm. it's been a very consistent number. And it's revealing because there has been attrition in the Taliban ranks, but they've been able to um, fill those spots um, with local recruiting and, and so forth. So this is not an attrition model. So if we're strictly into attrition warfare here, where we're going to try to kill our way out of this or fight our way out of this, uh, the experience of the last decade ought to be pretty pretty revealing mm-hmm. that uh, that's not going to be successful. Now, who are they? This gets complicated, and it, it really begins to address what I call one of the phony arguments of the war in Afghanistan. One of the phony arguments is that it is an argument that equates the Taliban with transnational terrorists. Mm-hmm. The Taliban do not threaten uh, anybody outside of Afghanistan. They have no agenda. They have no goal. They don't seek a global caliphate. Uh, They are Islamists. They are uh, violent in their tactics. Um, They are fundamentally, however, Afghan insurgents. And their primary goal is to return to power, as they were in the late 1990s, return to power in uh, Kabul. They want to run Afghanistan. Um, They're fundamentally Pashtun uh, in, in terms of ethnicity. Uh, and that's important because when you get into the demographics of this fight, there are about 40 million Pashtuns in the world. They all live in basically in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, about 60% of the 40 million actually live in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So when in 2001, the Taliban in Afghanistan were displaced by our military campaign after 9-11, they naturally went to where their cousins and nephews are, and that's right, to Pakistan. Right. And, and that's where the leadership of the Taliban uh, are today. 
So they are, they are insurgents who use terrorist tactics. But, you know, frankly, in history, most insurgents use terrorist tactics uh, because they don't have conventional tactics uh, at their hand. Um, mm-hmm. And they aim to take over Afghanistan. They do not have transnational reach. They do not have transnational aspirations. So it, we have to be careful here. And we have to be precise about who the enemy is. If, as President Trump said, and frankly, as Presidents Obama and Bush said, that our real fight here is against those who can reach us, those who can do America and her allies harm, then you have to be a little careful and parse exactly how the Taliban may, or I think, increasingly do not fit into that category. That is a really interesting point. And I think one of the ways... Presidents Bush, Obama, and Trump, I think, kind of could make or have the administrations have made an end run around your argument is to say that the Taliban uh, provided a safe haven in Afghanistan where groups like al-Qaeda could plan and execute attacks. Now, a guy named Mike Kazenko wrote a piece in the New York Times recently said where the notion of a safe haven is actually based, in his view, on an inexcusable misunderstanding of how 9-11 was planned since attackers ended mm-hmm. up in Maryland, in San Diego, in Oklahoma City. I'm curious what you think of that argument, because obviously ISIS has benefited from a security vacuum in Iraq, but it's also spreading its ideology online. So it's it's sort of it's hard to know what a safe haven means necessarily in that context. Well, this is another one of my phony arguments that that we sometimes hear, and it requires again, it requires a, a touch of discipline, a, a touch of precision about exactly uh, what we're arguing here. Um, first of all, uh, to the 9-11 case, it's true the Taliban ruled Afghanistan um, before and uh, during 9-11. But the plot itself, and it's true that Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan at the time of 9-11. But the plot itself was, was crafted in Hamburg, Germany. The mm-hmm. pilots were trained in the United States. So mm-hmm. it's not as though there was some big map, a war map in Afghanistan and, you know, and bin Laden with a pointy uh, stick was, uh, you know, sort of crafting the strategy here. Uh, these plots were done elsewhere. And that's, and that's instructive because what it means is that wherever these, wherever the, the standard bears, wherever the headquarters of these groups tend to be, they really have reach that's, that's much more dispersed, much more diverse, and much harder to get at. And that goes all the way back to 9-11. Now, with regard to the phony argument applied to Afghanistan, I mean, if you look at 2001, September 10th, 2001, the Taliban are in Afghanistan and rule Afghanistan. Uh, Bin Laden has camps there. He's there himself, but he has this sort of global movement uh, operating in places like Hamburg and and Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, And there's really no other central authority contesting uh, security in Afghanistan. Now, fast forward to today. Today, there are 300,000 Afghan army and police. They're not perfect, um, but they represent 300,000 government security forces who weren't there on September 10th, uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have the experience of the Taliban uh, in the intervening years. What we know from the Taliban spokesperson on the public sense, but also um, in, in other, using other sources, that the Taliban actually appreciate that they made a huge mistake uh, hmm. in the wake of 9-11. Uh, 
uh, by continuing to shelter bin Laden. And the result of that is they lost power. I mean, they were kicked yeah. out of Afghanistan with our campaign. So it's not clear that the Taliban uh, didn't get the point here about harboring, um, harboring terrorists. Yeah. And finally, even if Afghanistan uh, were – even if we were not there, you have these 300,000 Afghan security forces who are there. Clearly, the U United States would have access to mm -hmm. Afghanistan, which we didn't have on September 10th of 2001. Nobody's talking about every last soldier, every last intelligence officer, every last diplomat uh, leaving Afghanistan. So we will have presence there. We have, a, we have robust partners there. And um, I, I don't think that the security vacuum argument makes much sense, even mm -hmm. if it did, Tommy. Mm -hmm. There are about 20 or 30 other places around the world that would be equally good candidates to be labeled um, safe haven. And yeah. if you look at places like – there's still areas in western Iraq, uh, in eastern Syria, uh, Libya, Somalia, Yemen – uh, and probably places even in Western Europe and maybe even isolated spots inside the United States where there are extremists plotting uh, against us. So the notion that somehow Afghanistan is special in this regard, uh, I think just defies logic. More nerdy foreign policy coming up on Pod Save the World. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com slash store to shop All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. One of the interesting things that emerged in that 09 review is, is a, sort of exactly what you're talking about. Obama decided we needed to destroy every last vestige of al-Qaeda, but that we needed to degrade the Taliban and push them back so that the Afghan government could uh, gain some stability, train up their local forces, uh, right. and, and then take control. The big debate 
ended up, well, or at least was summarized over how to do that. It was a question of a major troop increase and a counterinsurgency strategy called COIN, or General General Biden, Vice President Biden uh, pushed hard for more of a (laughs) counterterrorism mission. Easy, Tommy, easy. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the distinction between the two in that debate at the time? Yeah, it it wasn't uh, a full-fledged debate. Um, So as you remember well, uh, and this is written up pretty well in, in a number of um, in a number of written accounts. Yeah. The military, the U.S. military, the U.S. Department of Defense uh, preferred option was to surge American troops so that American troops could take the lead for a while uh, against the Taliban, um, sort of beat them down, suppress them, so that the transition from the growing Afghan security forces would be easier because, first of all, we would gain some time, time to develop the Afghan security forces, but also when the transitions took place, they'd take place with a depleted um, uh, Taliban, uh, a suppressed Taliban. So, so the surge was actually a, a, a technique, a method to uh, promote the transition to Afghan authority. Um, and so that was widely accepted as, you know, possible, viable. Um, the military uh, obviously um, advocated that and believed in the potential of co- counterinsurgency um, with the aim of ultimate transition to the Afghans. Um, there was a search for several weeks for alternatives. Not to dismiss the counterinsurgency argument, but just to have something to argue it against, to consider it against, to compare it mm-hmm. to. And in right. the course of that conversation, um, one of the sort of out-of-the-box options was to suggest, well, look, if as President Obama had declared in the spring of 2009, if our key objective was against al-Qaeda, and this is, you remember, the three Ds, right? Disrupt, mm-hmm. dismantle, and defeat al-Qaeda. If al-Qaeda was our target, then why, didn't, why don't we talk about a troop surge against al-Qaeda, not right. against the Taliban? Um, and so there was a discussion about what would a counterterrorism-based approach feature. And one of the features is at least one of the, one of the modeling constraints was that it would probably require many fewer U.S. troops, and it wouldn't require this sort of taking um, the fight to the most remote, remote areas of especially southern and eastern Afghanistan, and maybe uh, we could do this more efficiently. So that was, those were two options that were tossed about, and we had a series of serious debates in the Situation Room before the president made his decision. Yeah. Just, just a quick aside, and in, in you were talking earlier about how there's sort of 20 places around the globe that you could say could sort of credibly fit the description of a safe haven. We could we could identify as a place where, you know, it could be a hotbed for extremism. Do you think we'd be talking about Afghanistan right now if it didn't share a border with Pakistan and if Pakistan didn't have nuclear weapons? So this is really important. Uh, for too long, the U.S., frankly, in both administrations, in fact, I think increasingly, I think in the Obama administration tended to look at this as a regional problem. But there's a tendency by us and by our policy mechanism to sort of try to isolate problems 
uh, and confine them to the basics and then just deal with that. Uh, for a while, mm-hmm. we did this in Iraq, by the way. We dealt with Iraq as though it was just an internal problem before we looked, began to look at the regional context. Um, early on, we did the same thing in Afghanistan. We began to treating Afghanistan almost as though it were an island in the Pacific, you know, with no – or the Indian Ocean, right? With no neighbors. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. And, of course, most prominently, um, the neighbor, neighborhood includes Pakistan. And that's critically important because it was from Pakistan that the U.S. and others supplied the jihadists who fought the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. So we actually, in cooperation with Pakistan – sponsored uh, groups to fight the Soviets in the, um, in the, from 79 to, to 89. So um, Pakistan's important there because it was the, sort of the original staging base. It's also important, maybe most important demographically, because as I mentioned earlier, the Pashtun people, these 40 million people without a nation state, are split uh, on either side of the Afghan-Pakistan border. So... When you understand the grassroots support for the Taliban, whether it's the Afghan Taliban, those who want to be in charge of Afghanistan, or frankly, their Pakistani cousins, the Pakistani Taliban, who are focused on uh, an insurgency against the Pakistani government. Um, You can see how that border area really becomes central. And the way to look at this, look, it's, it's, I think it's a 1,500-kilometer border. I mean, this is a very long border, and it's either desert or it's very steep mountain passes. It is very, very hard to control, and it's never effectively been controlled in the history of, of either country. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where – that's the nest for these – uh, Taliban on both sides, so both the Afghan Taliban and the, and the Pakistani Taliban, but also others like the uh, uh, IMU, um, remnants of al-Qaeda, uh, and even today uh, some, um, some, one of the branches of uh, this so-called Islamic State. Yeah. You've written some pieces recently about the need for a, a diplomatic surge and the need for more diplomacy. I always love it when uh, folks from, you know, senior military leaders talk about the need for more funding and support to the State Department in that mission. Do you think that um, there's a better opportunity now of getting to some sort of diplomatic negotiated end to this war with the current leadership after we finally got through the, the Karzai era? Was that a huge sticking point that just made progress uh, impossible? Well, let me just let me just back that up a little bit, Tommy, and then I'll get to your get to your answer. Please. So, the shiny object here, the thing that seems to gather all the attention, right, is the security situation. And it's true that there is roughly a stalemate in the security situation with the Taliban and the government forces backed by us, roughly at stalemate. Uh, it's also true that over the last year or so, we began we we've seen some slippage where the Taliban seemed to be somewhat ascendant. But this is very much on the margin. Uh, and mm-hmm. and with, the, with only a couple exceptions, the city of Kunduz, for example, most of the Taliban games have, gains have been in very remote, mountainous areas of Afghanistan that have very little population. They don't really uh, challenge the security forces, the Afghan government security forces in any of the population centers. So this is, mm-hmm. this is not a... 
there's no challenge here that the city of Kabul or Kandahar or or Mazar or Herat, the big population centers of Afghanistan, are about to fall to the Taliban. Um, There is roughly a stalemate. But that's not the stalemate, in my view, that counts. The stalemates that count are the stalemates that strike to the root of the problem. The security situation is the symptom. The cause of the problem, the root of the problem, are all political. And that's because of the stalemate inside Kabul uh, between the different elements of what uh, the United States terms the national unity government. Uh, So there's a problem there. And although we have a very good working partnership with with both President Ghani and Chief Executive uh, Abdullah, uh, they are often at odds. And this plays out in terms of appointments and policy reforms and so forth. Uh, So there's a bit of a stalemate inside Kabul. There's another stalemate between Afghanistan and her neighbors, uh, most prominently Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the president's speech a week ago uh, addressed a lot of – a lot the problem of Pakistan. But he didn't mention any of the other neighbors. And they're Mm -hmm. also prominent. He he didn't say the word Iran. He didn't say the word Russia. He didn't say the word China. So – Unless you approach the problem in Afghanistan, accounting for all of the prominent neighbors, uh, then you're probably going to be stalemated in the region. And then the third stalemate is the one your question sparks, and that's the one between the Afghan government and, uh, and the Taliban. And this is the question of can you imagine a day when Afghan government officials are talking to Taliban officials somewhere, maybe the U.S. is in the room or just outside the room, Um, And they're talking about the potential for a compromise that brings this 17-year-old war to a close on Afghan terms, not on terms Mm -hmm. dictated by us and not on terms dictated by any of the neighbors. And so your question was, is that any more likely today? It's It's not clear to me. In the Obama administration, when President Obama surged early in, well, actually late in 09, but early in his eight-year administration, he surged uh, troops so that we ended up with 100,000 American troops in, mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. One of the motives there was to suppress the Taliban enough and convince them that there was no way they were going to ever return to power and to cause them to get to the bargaining table. Um, we had some fleeting success in that regard in the Obama years. Um, We did talk to the Taliban. Um, We had relatively senior U.S. government officials meeting with the Taliban um, officials uh, in third sites in safe areas. Um, And we had uh, agreements with third parties uh, to try to assist in this. And there was some promise in that. But quite frankly, um, it was hit and miss. And it was not sustained progress towards a common end. Uh, and so um, the result is we never, we never really got into serious negotiations uh, with the Taliban, and we were never able to sort of sponsor those kinds of talks Afghan on Afghan. Yeah. I don't know that the situation today is dramatically different. I mean, I think we have a more reliable Afghan government partner today in Ashraf Ghani. Um, I do not think that the Pakistan part of this equation has changed substantially. And frankly, 
I don't believe the United States has sufficient leverage on Pakistan to force it to do something that's against its strategic calculus. And most of Pakistan's calculus, of course, centers on India, not on the Afghan Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, the U- Finally, the U.S. has interests with Pakistan that, in my view, exceed the U.S. interests in Afghanistan. So let me just – I know this sounds <laughs> – what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the reality, as your, suggest, as your question suggests, is that, you know, the principal concern we have in this region – is the security of Pakistani nuclear weapons and the and suppressing, limiting, minimizing the chance of a nuclear-on-nuclear nuclear conflict between Pakistan and India. That surpasses, those interests surpass anything uh, that has anything to do with Afghanistan. Um, beyond the nuclear part of the interest equation, we have an interest in transnational terrorists like al-Qaeda and the remnants of al-Qaeda, being suppressed to the point where they don't have time and space to plot against us. Most of those transnational terrorists are actually in Pakistan um, or immediately on the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So if you look at this strictly from vital national interests, what we really are concerned about, both the nuclear part of the equation, the Indo-Pak part of the equation, and transnational terrorists, have your focus, frankly, first on Pakistan and then subsequently on Afghanistan. And that's why I'm a little concerned about at least what we know about the current administration's approach, that their approach is simply to apply more and more pressure on Pakistan. Well, eventually, more and more pressure on Pakistan is going to bump into our own interests which are fundamentally in Pakistan. You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling 
and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. You know, it's funny when I, people probably hear me talking to a, an army general who ran the war efforts out of the White House and they think you were thinking about rules of engagement and troop levels. The amount of time your team, your incredibly talented team, by the way, spent uh, trying to facilitate peace talks among the PACs, the Afghans, the Taliban, the United States was extraordinary. And it was, you know, for a period of time, maybe one of the most secret, you know, pieces of business the U.S. government was doing, right? Until it all leaked out. Well, yeah, it it needed to be secret. And, and you know, that's also revealing because I suppose there are elements of the current administration's policy, which we we only got the outline of this. We got the cliff notes. Do you guys even know what yep. cliff notes are anyway, Tommy? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, all right. It was big in my generation. Okay. We call but, it Google now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We got the Wikipedia version yeah. of the strategy last Monday, right? And that's because, in part, you can only do so much by way of communicating, by way of presidential speeches, right? And you know this well, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it, it reveals that there are parts of strategies like our strategy in Afghanistan, Pakistan, that don't deserve to be revealed publicly. And so, I, I don't know. I don't have any insight into what this administration plans with regard to trying to pursue uh, talks with the Taliban or to promote talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban. I don't know. There wasn't much detail on Monday about exactly what kind of pressure they intend to assert against Pakistan. Um, and we should give them credit for that. I mean, we don't, I don't know of any big strategy like this that gets completely revealed to, to the public. Yeah, right. Um, but I'm skeptical that we have sufficient national uh, leverage on Pakistan to cause it to change its stripes, um, which fundamentally have to do with um, what they consider an existential threat, a threat to the survival of their nation, and that's India. That's not Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. So I don't know. I am convinced, and I'm going long on this answer, but I am convinced that the the way this thing eventually ends is with uh, talks between the Afghan government and the Afghan Taliban and some sort of compromise that ends the violence or, or dramatically suppresses the violence and frankly finds space for the Taliban inside the body politic of Afghanistan. Now, as we were thinking about this in the Obama years, you know, that's a nasty thought. Because these guys, I mean, think of what they've done to innocent Afghan civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of the blood on their hands the blood of American soldiers, um, yeah. some 2,400 American troops, some 1,000 troops from our NATO allies. Uh, nobody wants to sit with these guys and compromise. But the harsh reality is that that's how these wars end. So I believe that the military effort, whatever it is, whether it's the 8,400 troops now or 10,000 more than that or 4,000 more than that, that that effort should be in service of the political objectives. And mm-hmm. I believe what we really need, and this is the, this is the big yawning gap in the discussion or in the, in the president's speech last Monday, the big gap is how is it 
that we're going to marshal the political capital? How is it that we're going to have a political surge that gets at the situation in Kabul, the situation in the region, and then the situation with the Taliban? And Mm -hmm. especially when, as you and your podcast buddies have discussed (laughs) previously, as I take long walks around Arlington and listening to you guys. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) This is what I do for entertainment now. But look, (laughs) as you guys have mentioned before, how is it that we're going to have the political bandwidth to do this when we're cutting the State Department by 30 percent? And almost on a weekly basis, you see very – you see a talent flow out of the State Department of experienced diplomats with 20, 25, 30 years of experience who should be putting their shoulders to this task. So you got a big announcement about what it is we're going to try to accomplish, but on the diplomatic side, I wonder if we're going to marshal the resources. Yeah. Um, my my final question for you, uh, you've, you've served 35 years in the Army. You've served in the White House managing two wars. You've overseen multiple surges. Uh, you've <laughs> worked at NATO as an ambassador. Like, you, you've seen the full f- field in a way I think very few people who aren't the president of the United States do. Are, are there lessons we should learn about when, why, how to conduct wars that you think we could apply going forward and, and maybe— not make some of the mistakes you've talked about on the show today, or um, I don't know. Like, what? How do we do this better? So let me offer three. And I. And by the way, I, so I'm still unpacking my last decade, and it, it you know it takes a while because you as you leave government, as I did in January, um, it takes a while to sort of decompress, to get your ideas together, to get your thoughts together. And so these here are three that are in my short early list, right, of mm-hmm. sort of personal lessons. One is what I call no shortcuts on strategy. What I mean by this is that in the military in military doctrine, in the military profession, the word strategy is special. It, mm-hmm. it holds a special place, and it has a very precise meaning. Strategy must have three components. It must have ends, ways, and means, as we say. What does that actually mean in plain English? It means that strategy has got to start with what it is you want to accomplish, your goals, your objectives. Those are the ends, right? It's got to include how you're going to do that. Those are the ways, the methods, the techniques. And then finally, it's got to have the third component, resources, the means. And when I say no shortcut on strategy, what I – and reflecting is that too often in Washington, the word strategy is used, but all, we're, all we really have is the first bit. All mm-hmm. we really have is a declaration of what we want to achieve. And when we take a shortcut and we don't figure out how we're going to do that, and we take further a shortcut and we don't assemble the resources, we're setting mm-hmm. ourselves up for failure every single time. Yeah. So uh, my, as I talk to you know, active duty military professionals now and do some speaking uh, out on the outside in the civilian realm. Um, no shortcuts on strategy is is one of my lessons. The other thing, Tommy, uh, lesson number two I'd offer today is these problems defy understanding. <laughs> they are as foreign to us as Americans as anything conceivable. So yeah. the second lesson is you've really got to go to school on this. I mean, you, this is not, these are not problems that you sort of uh, you sort of dip into and then depart and come back, you know, a couple months later. You've got to have dedicated, focused attention on this across the government. 
So forming the intra-government teams of intelligence professionals, and by the way, the intelligence community tends to do this mastery of the subject best because they, mm-hmm. they stay with a topic. They stay with a problem for a long time, sometimes a career, right? Yeah. The military does it less well, frankly. The military officers rotate in and out of problem sets all over the world. So an officer can be assigned to Afghanistan for a 12-month tour, go home for a 12-month tour, and his next tour will be in Korea. Well, you know, mm-hmm. does that really make sense today <laughs> when, when we need to master our topics? Now, I must, as a footnote, uh, mention that uh, General Mick Nicholson, our four-star U.S. and NATO commander today in Afghanistan, is an exception. He is there on his fourth tour wow. in Afghanistan. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of repeat tours uh, that will lead to mastery of the subject. So the second, the second lesson is you got to really go to school. you got to master this subject. Mm-hmm. And then the last lesson is simply that even when you've got four tours in Afghanistan or you've been doing this for 10 years or you're an intelligence professional and you've been doing this for 20 years and you speak the language, you better have a little humility because in my experience, when you begin to think you know everything about a problem set, you're about to be ambushed. You're yeah. about to be ambushed with circumstances, facts, conditions, changing situations that you didn't expect. Uh, and only if you're humble enough to appreciate that you're never going to know at all are you really on safe ground. And if you look back over the last, since, certainly since World War II, I think, and you ask, where have the biggest American foreign policy mistakes taken place? Each of those examples, I believe, features uh, a heavy dose of lack of humility yeah. uh, and, a, and a, a sort of a certainty that we knew what we were doing. Uh, that's very dangerous. General Lute, I'm uh, filled with humility hearing your experience <laughs> and knowledge of these subjects. That's unusual, Tommy. I the best the the best part about working at this whatever crooked media is is that I get to have these conversations that used to be my uh, part of my day to day life at the NSC. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for it's all pleasure, you did Tommy. for the country, for President Obama, for all of us. Um, you know. It's, it's well, truly, thanks a million, uh, it's an and, honor. and thanks to you and your teammates here on the on the podcast because you're performing a, an important service too. So, yeah. so keep it up. We just we just bullshit for a living. You guys do the hard <laughs> stuff. And pretty, and I appreciate that you you pretty much you pretty much saved any foul language. I was I was preparing, <laughs> you know, I was preparing some foul language here. Oh um, yeah, but but uh, but I was advised against it. I I, I clean it up for the uh, for the the nerdier show. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Yeah, thanks for that credential. All <laughs> uh, right, thank you, General Lute. Appreciate All right, it, Tommy.